Well, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. We have a a custom in our church of often reciting our mission statement. We didn't do it yet this morning, but we are about to. Our mission statement is something that we rehearse every week, and it's something that is incredibly familiar to us all. And if we're not careful, that familiarity can actually breed a lack of familiarity to the details of what it is that we are actually committing to. Most of you know our mission statement. If you don't know it, you can listen along and uh, be encouraged by it. But let's rehearse that together. We exist to magnify God. Read it again. Listen carefully. We exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all else in every dimension of life as regulated by the word of God. It's a very purposeful statement. It is, in fact, a missional statement. Why do we exist? What is our mission as a body of believers? And that statement gives two answers. To magnify God or to make much of God and to spread a passion for him. And in that statement, there's a twofold method for doing that. By making disciples or evangelizing to see people saved And then shepherding them, teaching them to grow in maturity. But the question that we must ask is, what is it that we are shepherding them to do? What is it that we are all to be involved in teaching one another to do? And the answer to that in our mission statement is to value Jesus Christ. To value Jesus above all else in every dimension of life as God's word instructs us. In many ways, we can say that we have set our sights most centrally on the valuing of Jesus Christ. Because that magnifies God and that, through our evangelistic efforts, spreads a passion for his glory. Value Jesus. Or to value Jesus. Value is a, it's a funny thing. We place values on a lot of entities in our life. Anytime that we purchase something, we are calculating the value of that product, whether we know it or not. And we're generally pretty interested in getting something that is a good value. That is to say, we are What we are getting is worth more than what we are paying. That's often our desire. I've never bought something and said, is there any way I can get the same product for more money? Retailers are keenly aware that this takes place in our minds. And this past week, 
We have endured a week that seeks to take advantage of that more than any other week of the year. Black Friday. And now Cyber Monday. Products are marked down to unprecedented prices. Just like they were last year. And the value factor starts to kick in in our minds. I like to scan the internet on Black Friday just to see what's out there. And let me tell you, it is a dangerous game. I have found myself shopping for something that I never knew I needed. I'm sure some of you have felt the same. But an accurate assessment of the value of something requires accurate information. If we're going to value something accurately, we need accurate information about the product. Alyssa and I, when we had just gotten married, were trying to piece an apartment together on a minimal to non-existent income. And we went to a thrift store and we bought our first kitchen table. We brought it home. We were pleased with our purchase. It, it was flimsy. It had some marks, some scrapes, some stains. Someone else had thoroughly used it and decided that it was time to upgrade. But it was perfect for us. It was our first table and we bought it for $100. Well, a few months later, we were grocery shopping at Walmart and we walked by a display where we saw our table. It was the same model, it was the same color, except it had no scrapes, no stains, nothing. It was brand new, unopened, unused. It was not discounted. It was being sold for full price. $99. I've never, I've never quite gotten over the fact that I got ripped off by a thrift store. My value assessment was off. I thought that something was worth far more than it actually was. We're constantly doing this. Because to overvalue something can put us in an incredibly dangerous situation. Well, as our mission statement directs us, our desire is to value Jesus Christ in accordance with what God's word regulates. You know what God's word teaches us? It teaches us that Jesus is actually the only one that cannot be overvalued. In God's word, we learn things like if we have gained the whole world, and yet lost our soul, that we have categorically undervalued Jesus. We've gained nothing. The believer recognizes that his very life is not worthy in comparison to Christ. That Jesus is worth everything. That Jesus is infinitely worthy. That he cannot be overvalued. He cannot be overvalued. Well, in the text that we come to this morning, we're gonna see an example before us. And it's an example of creatures whose whole life exists to worship Christ. Their entire existence revolves around the worship of Christ. The heart of our text today is Revelation 5, and we're, we're especially going to emphasize verses 8 through 14. That's the climax of this scene, and that's where we're going to find our outline in a few minutes. But the events leading up to that part of the text are critical 
to rightly understanding what happens at the end of this chapter. And in verses 1 through 7 of Genesis, of Revelation 5, we read a fascinating story in which the Apostle John is in a vision. He has seen events that are yet to come. He is taken up to heaven and he sees some incredible things. In chapter 5, we are in what is called the throne room where God Almighty is seated on his throne. Chapter 4 of Revelation has just described God the Father and how heaven broke out in epic praise towards him. But in chapter 5, the tone changes significantly. In chapter 5, for the first time in this heavenly scene, we encounter a problem. Look at verse 1. I, John, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that is God the Father, a book written inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. Now at this point in the book of Revelation, we are not yet told what is in this book. I think that later in the book that becomes clear, but chapter five is not concerned with that matter. At this point, the purpose is not to identify what is in the book, but to answer the question, how do we open this book? It's sealed up with seven seals. And these seals can only be broken so that the book may be opened. They can only be broken by one who is deemed to be worthy. We cannot open this book. We cannot even find out what is in this book unless the worthy one opens it. And so in verse 2, we read that a strong angel proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? An elder in this scene, a seemingly a special type of angel calls out, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the book? And that is the key question of our text this morning. Who is worthy? That word worthy is critical to this entire chapter. The word worthy is ultimately a question of value. When we come to that word, we are asking a question of value. It can return to internal value. It can refer to external accomplishments that promote the value of an individual? The question at hand is, wh whose value is high enough to attain to the honor of opening this book? Who deserves it? Who has earned the right? Who has the inherent value and position and merit to accomplish this task? Who is worthy? open the book. Well, between verses two and three, a search ensues, a search to find a worthy one. And there are three realms that are searched, three categories where someone is, is being sought after that could possibly open the book. The first realm that is searched is heaven. That is to say, 
All of the angels were surveyed. The seraphim, the living creatures that surround the throne, the strongest angels that have shown throughout history to be able to do incredible things. And none of them was able to open the book. The second realm that is searched is all of earth. That is to say, every man that is alive, rich and poor, strong and weak, every nation, every continent, every single individual alive is evaluated. And no one on earth is worthy to open the book. There's a third realm that is surveyed. That is those under the earth. That is to say those who are dead. Every person that has ever reigned. Billions of individuals are surveyed. The greatest rulers the world has ever known. Alexander the Great is evaluated. Genghis Khan, Cyrus the Great, Napoleon, Hannibal, world leaders, they are all evaluated and no one in the grave is worthy to open the book. And so we come to verse three, where that verdict is declared. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open or even to look into it. That's the verdict. Everyone has been surveyed, billions of souls, and not a single one is worthy. Now John is really engaged in this scene. He's really drawn in. John really wants to know what is in this book. And when no one is found in all of the universe, in all of history, that is worthy to open the book, it is a huge letdown for John. Look at just how big of a letdown it is in verse 4. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. John begins to cry. And this isn't just a tear streaming down his face. He is weeping greatly. Which seems, seems a little strange. No one can open the book and John just loses it. <laughs> He's in heaven, pretty cool scene, can't control his emotions. When's the last time you started weeping greatly because you couldn't read a book? I know students who weep greatly because they have to read a book. <laughs> this, is, this is counterintuitive on every level but it shows the intensity of this scene. Whatever it is that's in this book, it is immensely important. And when it can't be opened, John is weeping with intensity. So one of the angels, one of the elders in verse five comes over to him. Look at what he says in verse five. One of the angels says to me, stop weeping. It's, it's rather abrupt by the angel. John, stop it. <laughs> Pull yourself together. Because the elder knows something that John doesn't know in this scene. John has a limited perspective. 
He thinks that the story is over and that we will never find out what was in that book. This whole universe-wide search led to no one who is worthy. And so in John's mind, he will never find out what is in this book. But what we come to discover in this chapter is that that whole universe-wide history-long search for someone to open the scroll wasn't actually about finding somebody. Look at verse five. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. The angel says to John, John, stop crying. There is one who is worthy. The lion of Judah, the seed of David. There is one who has been found who is worthy. So the question, the appropriate question to ask is, what was that whole universe-wide search all about? It wasn't as if the whole angelic realm just forgot about Jesus for a little bit and they searched the whole earth and they didn't find anyone and then they remembered, oh yes, there's Jesus. The whole point of that search was not actually to track someone down that was worthy, but to point out that no created thing is worthy. That nothing and no one that has ever been created could ever be worthy of this role. No created being is worthy of the role of the lion of the tribe of Judah. No created being is worthy of the role of Jesus. No one can take his place. He alone, he alone deserves the opportunity to open this book. Why? Verse five tells us, because he has overcome. He has overcome. That is to say, Jesus has won. He is victorious. That word overcome is very important in the book of Revelation. The, the believer's ultimate goal is to overcome in the beginning of the book of Revelation. And here it says Jesus has overcome. He has won. He is victorious. He has defeated sin and death at the cross. So he gets to open the book. He alone is worthy. Well, at this blessed announcement, John's eyes are redirected to the throne of God to see this one who is worthy, to see the lion of Judah. So John's eyes move to the throne. They move from this elder to the throne to see the lion of Judah. But he doesn't see a lion. He doesn't see a lion. Look at verse six. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb. 
sees a lamb. Which again is surprising. The lion is heralded, but he appears as a lamb. Now when Christ is called the lion, that is to emphasize him as a victorious and mighty leader from the tribe of Judah, the strong and majestic one. But the lamb, and this text carries no such connotation. The lamb embodies an atoning sacrifice. The lion and the lamb are incompatible creatures. Just as a mighty leader and an atoning sacrifice are incompatible. And yet in Christ, those two are shockingly united. He is the lion and he is the lamb. Here, John sees the lamb. And we've not reached the end of surprising things about this lamb. Look back at verse 6. I see a lamb standing as if slain. The lamb is a standing slain one. Which again is an oxymoron. He's standing there but showing every evidence of having been killed. He's described further. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. As with many things in the book of Revelation, there's lots of symbolism that is happening in this chapter. Christ the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes that seem to be symbolizing the fullness or completeness of the Holy Spirit that is present with the Son. And what this, what this lamb that has been slain proceeds to do in verse seven is walk. Look at verse seven. He, the lamb, came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This lamb walks right up to the throne and he does what no creature could ever do. He takes the book from the hand of the father. And at that very moment, at that very instant, heaven erupts in a massive celebration. Look at verse eight. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. All of the creatures that are around the throne, they fall down when the lamb takes the book and they begin to, to erupt singing a song of praise. My mind, as I read this scene, goes to, goes to a sporting event. Imagine a, a championship game, a, a game-winning three-pointer is traveling through the air, or a game-winning field goal, or, or, or a penalty kick. And as that ball travels through the air, you're familiar with this scene. As that ball travels through the air, it's as if everything is happening in slow motion. The crowds are silent as they wait in anticipation. You can hear a pin drop. Everyone is holding their breath 
And what takes a second seems to last an eternity. And if that ball drops through the net or the field goal is good, the nervous and anticipatory silence erupts into celebration. Chaos breaks out. Jumping and screaming and crying and laughing. Fans are ecstatic when all hope seemed lost that victory had been found. You've seen this scene play out many times. This scene is similar. No one has been found worthy to open the book. All hope seems lost. And then there is a lamb, but it's a lamb standing as if slain. And he walks up to the throne and everyone's watching. And they're wondering, is this it? Can this be it? Will he take the book? And the lamb grabs hold of the book and everyone erupts into celebration. He takes the book and everyone starts singing praises, shouting praises, extolling the glory of the lamb. And the praise that they're shouting communicates two truths that are going to drive the rest of this text this morning. We are now in the heart of this passage, the climax of this passage. These two truths that are echoed all revolve around the fact that Jesus is worthy. I'm going to structure this around two echoes in the unending refrain of the worthiness of Jesus. These creatures are going to begin singing a song and there are echoes in this unending song that continue throughout eternity and they all declare the worthiness of Jesus. Two echoes in the unending refrain of the worthiness of Jesus. Number one, Jesus is worthy because he died to redeem you. Jesus is worthy because he died to redeem you. As these creatures begin to break out in praise, the first echo that reverberates through the throne room is an echo about the worthiness of Christ because he died to redeem us. Let's look for just a moment at who is doing this This praise. Who is delivering this praise to Christ? In verse 8 again we read that there are four living creatures and 24 elders who fell down before the Lamb. Each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. There are four creatures and 24 elders that are singing this praise. These are heavenly individuals, essentially different forms of angels. And they surround the throne. And these creatures cannot stop. They cannot stop praising God. One of the things we learn about these four animals and these 24 elders is that they they constantly, in the book of Revelation, cannot get off of their face. It's as if every scene that we come to them, they see something amazing about God and they fall down in worship. And as soon as they get back up, something amazing is noticed again about God and they fall back down on their faces. They're constantly bowing, constantly praising God. Now these creatures are incredible. These four living creatures that are described are 
They take the form of different animals and yet they have eyes all around them and they have wings all around them. They're incredible creatures, but they aren't the focal point. The focal point in this scene is Christ. The amazing creatures around the throne are amazed at Christ. They're falling down. Complete and utter worship. They cannot contain themselves. But I want us to note something. This, this is not the first time that we've seen these creatures in the book of Revelation. Look back at Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, where we read the four living creatures... Each one of them having six wings are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. In Revelation chapter four, verse eight, these same creatures are singing a song. The text tells us they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is all that these creatures do. This is all that they know. They continually, they do not stop crying out about the holiness of God. So these creatures have been declaring the holiness of the Father. But that song is not actually a song that started in Revelation 4. We don't have time to turn there now, but many of you are familiar with Isaiah chapter 6 where we are told of creatures with six wings that are around the throne who are crying out, holy, holy, holy. In other words, the song of Revelation 4 is not a song that began in Revelation 4. It was being sung thousands of years ago in Isaiah chapter 6. These creatures have been singing this song forever. They do not cease. They do not stop. So it is shocking. It's shocking when we get to Revelation chapter 5 and we find out that that song stops. Look at Revelation chapter five, verse nine. And they sang a new song. This song is new. This song has not been sung before. Something has taken place in heaven that has caused a pattern that has occurred for thousands of years to stop. A new song begins to be sung. And here's what they cry out. Verse 9. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. They sing a new song. And at the heart of this song is our word, worthy. The first word to leave their lips, worthy are you. You're worthy. 
You're deserving. You alone have the right to take the book and break its seals. Why? They answer that question in their song. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain. You were slain. It's a curious statement. You are worthy because you were killed. The God of the universe slain by sinful men. He atoned for the sins of men. He is the only one who could do that. And thus, he is the only one who is worthy. He's worthy because he died. Now generally, generally for us, death is viewed as a loss. But for Christ, it was a victory. Christ was not defeated at the cross. Christ was victorious at the cross. It was at that moment that that the penalty was paid and victory over sin was accomplished. And that's exactly what these creatures sing about. What was accomplished at the cross when the lamb gave up his life. Look at the effect of him giving up his life in verse nine. You were slain and you purchased for God. With your blood, men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus' death was not meaningless. It purchased something. You know what it purchased? People. His death purchased people. People of every kind. Every tribe, every nation, every spoken language. His blood was sufficient for people of every kind. Christ died. He gave up his life to purchase you. The God who created and who owns everything. Think about that. The God who created and who owns everything gave up his life to purchase you. It it changes everything. It changes everything for these creatures. They stop singing their old song. They start singing a new song. Can, Can we possibly, can you possibly overvalue someone, God no less, who would give up his life for you? First Corinthians 6 suggests that we should not. You were bought. You were bought with a price. So glorify him with your body. Because you were purchased. He bought you with his blood. Because God has purchased you, you are his. And he can use you for his glory. Do you know what he has done with you and to you and for you? It's, it's described more in verse 9. He has purchased With his blood, men from every tribe, tongue, verse 10 rather, keep reading. You have made them, because you've purchased them, you have made them to be a kingdom. Because he has purchased believers, he has made them to be a kingdom. 
This phrase means that those who are redeemed are not merely people over whom God reigns, though they certainly are that, but that they are actually elevated to the position of ruling alongside of Christ. We will reign, we will rule alongside of him. It's explained more at the end of verse 10. Look at the last phrase in verse 10. They will reign upon the earth. As a child, I often had a view of heaven. I had heard it described as a wedding feast that we would forever worship God. And while there are attractive descriptions there as a child, I had been to a wedding feast. And I wasn't all that excited. (laughs) Heaven Though our minds can errantly think of it, heaven is not a place where we will eternally sit in circles and sing songs about Jesus. I don't know if that's in your head. That was in my head at one point in time. He's going to make his children kings. Kings to reign on the earth. And yes, we will worship him forever and ever as we enjoy the paradise and the sinless presence of God. And we will reign alongside of him. That's what Jesus purchased for you. That's what these creatures sing about. You have purchased us with your blood to make us a kingdom and we will reign upon the earth. Not only did he make us a kingdom, a victor alongside of him, But these these creatures also sing that he has made us priests. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests. Priests were the ones who had access to God to perform ceremonious acts of worship on behalf of the people. In other words, because Jesus bought you, you have direct and unrestricted access to God. You have the privilege and the access of praising and worshiping God eternally as one of the blood-bought, redeemed people of God. So all of that, Jesus died. He shed his blood to purchase, to purchase us and make us a kingdom and a priest who reigns upon the earth. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? How unbelievable is that? If you are a child of God, you will reign with God and have unrestricted access to God forever. And with that awareness, the amazing creatures in heaven all hit the deck face down, crying out, worthy are you. Worthy are you. You deserve it. You have earned it. You are worthy. What a song. What an incredible song to sing. Praise God. Praise God for what he has done to purchase us. We should reflect the praise of these creatures. And yet, the praise doesn't stop there. There's a second echo in the unending refrain of the worthiness of Christ. The second echo is Jesus is worthy 
of every conceivable reward. Jesus is worthy of every conceivable reward. He's worthy because he died to redeem you. He is worthy of every conceivable reward. Draw your attention to verse 11. Then I looked. Something new is happening here. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In verse 11, John introduces some new characters to the scene. The creatures and the elders were already praising the sun. Now, additional angels join in. And it's not just a few more angels. Keep reading in verse 11. The number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. A myriad is 10,000. John is saying, these 28 creatures were singing and then I looked and, and I saw more. And it wasn't just a few more. It was tens of thousands upon tens of thousands, seemingly a, a countless millions of individuals. Millions of angels gathering around the throne. Unimaginable numbers. And they all join in. Can you imagine how deafening this would have been? The indication in this text is that this, these creatures are not just being contemplative. But that they are breaking out in worship to God. Their praise is to cry out. Look at verse 12. With a loud voice. Worthy. There it is again. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He's worthy. He's worthy of every conceivable reward. What is it that he is worthy of? Buckle up because the list is thorough. He is worthy of all power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Power means the ability to do all things. He is the all-powerful one. He is worthy of all riches, that is wealth. Unlimited wealth, this term indicates, befitting of a sovereign king. Possessions, everything is his. He's worthy of it. Wisdom, supreme knowledge and reigning. You have all knowledge and perfect wisdom. He's worthy of all might. It's different, but similar to the word power. Power means you have all strength. Might means you're executing all strength. He is worthy of all of the strength that he is constantly executing. He is reigning as the strong one, and he's worthy of it. He's worthy of all honor. That is reverence, respect, awe of every created being. It should be directed to you, they're saying. You are worthy of it. You're worthy of all blessing. That is the praise of everyone. You're worthy. You deserve it. Because of what Jesus did, 
because he was slain like a lamb. He deserves the right to power, to riches, to wisdom, to might, to honor, to glory, to blessing. Let me summarize it for you. That's everything. That is every conceivable reward. And he, he deserves it. He is worthy because he is the God who was slain to purchase men. Jesus receives everything. The day is coming when the entire universe will be given to Jesus as a reward for what he has done. He receives it all. Why? Because he deserves it all. He's worthy. If Jesus is worthy of everything, of every conceivable reward, he's most certainly worthy of every conceivable element of my life. He's worthy of my devotion. He's worthy of my schedule. He's worthy of my desires. He's worthy of my relationships. The one who believes that all of this is true responds in ongoing submission to the one who will receive it all. They say, Lord, you are going to receive it all, so take it all. Take it all now. I don't have to wait. I want my whole life to revolve around the one who is worthy of everything. That is the cry of a believer. The anthem declaring that message is deafening, but it's not done yet. Keep reading. Verse 13. The circle gets wider. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying. Okay, so we started with four creatures, 24 elders joined in, tens of thousands upon tens of thousands of angels join into that praise and then it gets elevated even more to every created thing. Every created thing is crying out this psalm. What are they saying? What is everyone, everywhere, from any point in time, crying out? It's a familiar song. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. You deserve it all. Every created thing crying out, you deserve it all. Blessing, all praise. Honor, all reverence. Glory, all splendor. Dominion, all authority. Forever and ever, it's not just right now, it never ends. For all eternity, you receive it all. Every created thing in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, in the sea, everyone, Everywhere, living and dead, heaven and hell, land and sea. Philippians chapter two tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those who are, this is familiar, in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will one day recognize that Jesus is Lord. 
The question is not, will you recognize if Jesus is Lord? The question is when. Everyone will recognize Jesus is Lord, but for some it will be too late. Everyone will give him the praise that he is due, but some are going to give him that praise and regret. You're going to bow the knee to Jesus. You're going to bow. Don't wait to do it until it's too late. Christ receives in this scene the very praise of God. This praise is delivered in verse 13 to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, to God the Father and to the Son. And while all of this is happening, those who are closest to Jesus can't get up off the ground. Look at verse 14. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. While all of this is happening, those who are closest to Jesus are falling down yet again, worshiping, saying, Amen. 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 You deserve it. This is right. You are 